would you bow your heads with me in prayer to our God? Merciful Father, we thank you that your mercy is so great. Father, I pray for this body and this congregation that we would know your mercy. Father, I pray that we would see our sin long enough to appreciate and love your kindness towards us. And I pray, O oh God, that if there's anyone in this room here this morning who needs to understand a fuller knowledge of your mercy, or shall I pray for all of us in this room who need to understand a fuller knowledge of your mercy, O oh God, would you work that in us? Father, would we know how far you have removed our sins from us. Would we believe that, O oh God, by faith today, that you have forgiven us completely in Jesus Christ? Father, we are the ones that stood beneath a debt that we could never afford. And, and our sins are, are vile, and they make us poor and weak. Oh, but God, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, and we praise you for that today. We praise you for Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our family this morning, our church family. We pray that you would work in us today and this week, oh God. Father, I'm reminded of the ladies that gathered in this building yesterday from our family. And I praise you for the time that they had together learning from your word. Father, we pray for the women of our church that you would work in their lives to mature them into the image of Christ. We pray, O oh God, that you would allow the women of our church to be radically free from anxiety and to have a radical trust in Jesus Christ, to have quiet hearts that collapse into the arms of their Savior, their shepherd, and that they would be known by this, that our church would be a compelling community to anyone who looks in, and sees the type of disciples that are trusting in King Jesus. Father, as you began this work, as you continued this work in our ladies yesterday, we pray that you'd continue it more so. Father, our hearts are also reminded of the weeks, and for John and Heather, Ava and Aiden, as they transition out of state and move away from us, Father, we are so grateful for your grace in their lives. We are so grateful for their service to us, their fellowship among us, their love for our body. Father, we are so grateful for how you have worked in them and how evident that has been. And so, Father, as a church right now, we together pray for them as they move away. 
Father, we together pray that you would give them a smooth transition as they move. We pray that you would allow all the logistical needs that they have to be met. We pray for their new employment that you would guide. We pray for their new home that you would provide. We pray for schooling to be smooth for Ava and Aiden. We pray that you would grow John and Heather together and that you would grow them more in Christ through this next season of their ministry and their life as a family. God, be with this family, we pray. And now, Father, we turn to your word and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in us even now. Father, we thank you for you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us in the dark. You have given us your word. You have spoken the, your very words to us in this book. And so, Father, as we come before you, would you give us spiritual eyes that see clearly? Would you use my feeble words to, to lift up your eternal word for your people today so that as we see your word, God, that we could be transformed? Father, we want to know Christ better. Show us Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Church family, I want to begin with considering a common question, which is probably more often directed to the older generation in this room. Where were you when you heard the news that JFK was assassinated? Or maybe a more fitting question for the following generation, the millennials and the Gen Xers in the room, where were you when you heard that the tw Twin Towers fell on 9-11? Or for the young people in the room, where were you when the world went into lockdown for the coronavirus pandemic? These types of reflective questions have traction in them because some reports are just so remarkable that the hearing of them creates a type of bookmark in our personal histories. They, they naturally kind of dog ear that page in the book of where we were at when we heard the, the news. It makes me think back to the first followers of Jesus Christ. I wonder what it would have been like to be one of the first followers of Jesus Christ and maybe think through a similar type of question. Imagine later on, as the church is kind of beginning the first century, amongst themselves asking, where were you when you first heard a report with his name in it? You know, Jesus of Nazareth? When those reports just first started spreading around, which, which miracle did you hear about first? Who came first to your village and, and told you of this teacher whose preaching just left thousands hanging on his every word, and whose miracles were honestly just unbelievable, if it hadn't been that there was just so many witnesses all seeing it for themselves. Where were you when you heard that? What would that be like? Last week in our text, we looked at Luke and how Jesus raised a man from the dead in front of crowds of people. There's mourners who just had this firsthand intimate knowledge that this man 
was dead. He was not mostly dead. Mostly dead is still partly alive. He was all the way dead. And Jesus raised him. And so we're not surprised when at the end of last week's passage, again, yet again, Luke tells us reports went out to the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And this week, we get to imagine what would it be like when John the Baptist heard those reports. John, where were you when those extraordinary reports started coming in about the Jesus who you baptized yourself? Well, the answer is John was in prison. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. If you brought your Bibles today, we're going to be in Luke 7 verses 18 through 35. This is a section that is largely dealing with this person, John the Baptist. If you just kind of look there in your text, the, the, the passage is longer. It's got three general movements in the text, uh, with each of them having a pair of questions, each of them focused on the nature of the new kingdom. If you just scan down through it, you can see verses 18 through 23 deal with John getting these reports about who Jesus is. And then down in verses 24 through 28, deal with Jesus explaining who John is. And then verses 29 through 35 there, the end, deal with Jesus explaining who the Pharisees are in light of who Jesus and John is, are. In each of these sections, we're going to learn something about how Jesus brings his kingdom and how we're expected to respond. So I'm just going to emphasize three points through these three sections as we walk through them today. We're going to see, first of all, the evidence of the kingdom come. Secondly, the greatness of the kingdom illustrated. And thirdly, the foolishness of the kingdom missed. I pray as we study this that, honestly, the, the, the preciousness of Jesus Christ would be sweeter to you today as you see the kingdom that Jesus Christ brings. So look at our story today. Let's begin by reading. I'm going to just jump up to verse 17 to give us context. 17 through 23. We read this. And the report about him, Jesus, spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So number one, the evidences of the kingdom come. Here we have what we've just read, this, this fascinating interchange between John the Baptist and Jesus. You remember John? back from Luke 3, he had preached repentance to the people, and he was put in prison. Now, 
hearing about Jesus while he's in prison, he wants to know, is Jesus the Messiah? Now, we know John had actually already believed in Jesus as the Christ. He had seen Jesus in the Jordan, and he had declared to those who were listening, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so then, notice what's happening here. Having already believed in Christ, he seems now to be seeking greater assurance. From prison, he sends his disciples. He wants to hear directly from Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? That is the, the Messiah. Or should I look for another? His, his looking for certainty, where to put his faith, where should he put his faith? Oh, friends, what a precious lesson we have here in this picture of John. I wonder how many people in this room have ever struggled and ever longed for more assurance in what you're believing. I'm guessing it's almost every one of us. John's example of belief is a belief that is still seeking greater certainty. Do you see it? And, you know, it strikes me, by the way, that, that a lie that the enemy often uses in our lives is that doubt must mean you don't have genuine faith. But this contradicts so much of the Bible where we just constantly see people trusting God by faith imperfectly, growing as they put doubt to death. That's what we see here in John. He deals with doubt by seeking greater certainty. I love the scene that, that John's disciples happen upon when they reach Jesus, when they come to him. Look down at verse 21. Luke writes, In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Here's the picture. Jesus is just caught in the act. It's like Luke is trying to communicate that when you interrupt Jesus, this is what you find. Imagine John's disciples traveling from, from far away, from another area, and, and coming in, and they're hearing where Jesus might be. And so they're kind of narrowing in on him, looking, searching for him out. Oh, I think he's, I think he's down this way. And, and then finding him eventually, when they get to him, what do they find? What do they see? They see him healing and performing more miracles of every kind among the people. So what's Jesus' answer? Is he the Messiah that, that John is looking for? Well, Jesus simply points to what he's doing. Verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus here is, by the way, actually quoting from the scripture. Uh, places like Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 61. The language that Jesus is using here is language that the Old Testament prophets used to speak of the coming messianic age. What would it look like when the prophecies of the coming kingdom were fulfilled in the Messiah? Jesus grabs these phrases and he uses them to describe his own ministry. And we see what we've already seen in Luke. We've, we've already seen this lame paralytic 
walk back in Luke 5. We've already seen the leper cleansed as Jesus touched him. We've already seen last week this dead man raised. We've heard Jesus' teachings as he preaches these good, this good news. And now the disciples of John see the same for themselves. Instead, so instead of answering their questions, Jesus just points to his actions. His works speak for themselves. He's caught red-handed in doing what only the Messiah can do. And he's quoting scripture about that coming day of the Messiah. Again, just a, a profound lesson about doubt. In the face of John's desire for greater certainty, what does Jesus do? He points to the evidence. He doesn't first call John to a blind faith. He doesn't tell John to just close his eyes, just try to believe that it's me. No, he says, open your eyes. Look closer. Look at the evidence of who he is and what he's done. Look closer at what the, the scripture has had promised. And look closer and you'll see what is now being fulfilled. Verse 22. Report what you have seen. Report what you have heard. Jesus' work was visible and it was verifiable. You could see it and hear it. And this is, by the way, the theme of the book of Luke. You remember where we started back in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, where Luke basically does this same argument. He compiles this orderly account for eye, of, from eyewitnesses, which could be verified and checked, so that we could what? We could have certainty. It's a historical account, account taking place in time and space that Luke is giving us. And so we aren't just surmising about what might have happened. Jesus' work has been seen and heard. And so, for Christians here today who are perhaps worried or, or working through aspects of doubts in the back of your mind, look at the evidence. Look what Scripture says. Look what Scripture said all along. It's promised this man. Tim Keller is helpful here. He, he points out that if we submit our doubts to Christ, they can work like antibodies in your bloodstream. They, they work to actually strengthen you as they help you to ask more questions about your own faith to see whether this is true or not. Because if Jesus is really the Messiah, then your questions can stand up to being asked. You can ask and you can learn from Scripture. The truth of his work will stand up for itself. So if you're not here, if you're here today and not a believer, let me just encourage you, test your doubts. The offer of Jesus Christ is not an offer that we come blindly to, but we come asking God to show us if this is indeed true. So notice the ending, though, of this section in verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here's the idea. Blessing is coming on the people. We, we see it. The Messiah is here. He's doing all of these miracles. He's preaching this great message. Who are the ones that will be blessed? It seems that the obstacle to being blessed by Jesus is not a lack of evidence. No, 
What prevents people from being blessed by Jesus is by being offended by his message. Evidence is plentiful. The problem is the offense of the message in our lives. You see, Jesus had been constantly calling people to repentance. It's what we've been seeing. He's been, he just, even just in the last week, if you think about it, he turned, remember, to the Israelites, and he called them out, saying that they lacked true faith. And here we have the, the coming news of Jesus Christ, which is so great. It's this blessing, but it's only for those who will humble themselves. It's only for those who will not be offended. I'm reminded of, of Romans chapter 1, which the the youth and the students have been working through on Sunday mornings, where in Romans 1.19, we read that our problem is, has never been seeing the evidence of God's existence. No, what God, what can be known about God is plain to mankind, because God has shown it to us. We all just instinctively know that there is a creator. Now, some of us are in far greater denial than others, but deep down inside, we instinctively know that we have not created ourselves. That there is a creator who has made us, that we are accountable to. The problem is we are offended by that. We don't want to be accountable to him. So let me just briefly just take it aside here. If, if you're here today and maybe not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not yet sure that you're a Christian, let me just say that there is a God that is truly real, that we are accountable to, whether you want to admit it now or in just a few years from now. The message of the Bible is a pleading message to be honest about the wrong things that you've done, your sin against him, your offense against him, and being honest about that, to repent and to look to Jesus. See, you don't fix the wrong things you've done by trying to do more good things. That's not the way it works before God. You already deserve the death penalty. You can't do some good works to try to outweigh that. The message of Scripture is that we look in faith to Jesus who takes away that death penalty for us so that we can be saved. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, look to him today. Talk to someone today about this gospel message. Well, since the, the topic of John the Baptist has come up in this section of Luke, in this next section, we, we deal more with who John is. Let's go ahead and read through this second section, uh, verses 24 through 28. Follow along in your Bibles again. We see there, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed sh shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, so if the first section was dealing with who is Jesus, 
here. This is now dealing with who is John. You can see there in verse 24, he begins speaking to the crowds concerning John. And he's answering this to, to illustrate a point. Here's his point number, point, number two, the greatness of the kingdom displayed. He wants to show us the greatness of this kingdom displayed. And, and here's what's going to be happening in this section. This, this whole section is driving towards one great point, and Jesus seems to do this through a two-step logic. So he's, he's building a logic which takes two steps, all right? So you need to follow along with me to get both of these steps. First of all, he begins kind of dialoguing with the crowd. He's, he asks this crowd, this rhetorical question, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Remember, John was out in this wilderness preaching repentance. He was a strange figure. He wasn't in some synagogue somewhere teaching like other religious leaders. He was preaching and baptizing off in the wilderness. What did you go out to see? Well, you didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. That is, you didn't go out for the view of what you'd find in the desert. It's not the scenery of the wilderness that was truly remarkable about who John is. Well, what did you go out to see then? Well, you didn't go out to see a, a man that was dressed in, in soft and splendid, luxurious clothing. Like, that's, that's not really what drew you out to this man. It wasn't his beautiful apparel or his impressive outward appearance that caught your attention. If you had wanted to see that, you, you would have gone to a king's court. You would have gone somewhere else. You would have gone to uh, the red carpet and seen everyone dressed up. No, that, that's not what you went out to see. No, the crowd traveled out in the wilderness to see what? To see a prophet, a messenger from God. So here's step one in the logic argument. See the greatness of this prophet. It wasn't where he was. It wasn't how he was dressed. It was that he was a messenger of God. He was more than a prophet. Jesus is elevating this role of John the Baptist. And look how far he elevates it here. He says that John the Baptist was so great that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. You see this verse here in verse 27. It's actually quoting from Malachi 3.1. This is the prophet that God used to prepare a way for Jesus. We, we've seen this already back in Luke 3, haven't we? You remember we talked about the supernatural highway that, that John was creating, tearing down mountains and, and lifting up valleys to prepare a way for the Lord? John was this great prophet who was prophesied in Scripture itself. God had spoken about this one man and his amazing ministry. But not only that, his work was so amazing that look at the end of verse, the first half of verse 28. 28a, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there's none greater than John. Now, that is just a, a really comprehensive statement. Like, go ahead and stand up if you were not born of a woman. Okay, everyone's still sitting down. Now, you could do that experiment around the whole world pretty much throughout all of time. I mean, get back to Adam, all right, analogy falls apart a little bit. Pretty much all of us, Eve too, I guess, have been born of a woman, right? 
How many of the prophets of old that we read about, how many of the great men and women uh, of the entire world, of history, have been born of women? Well, pretty much everybody. Jesus is saying that John's role, who John is, has this profound, unparalleled greatness. You see, where Moses had looked forward to Christ from a distance, and where Isaiah, Isaiah had prophesied about Christ many times over, but almost as if through a mirror dimly, or Elijah and Elisha, as we saw last week, they prefigured Christ by echoes and reflections. Oh, no, no, no. John the Baptist, his prophetic ministry, oh, it was different. He got to stand right next to Christ, and he got to point him out to everyone else. He got to be the bridge between the ages, kind of having one foot over in the old covenant and one foot, one toe dipping into the new. He, he got to point to the very son of God having come to earth. There he is. There's God. And I, I'm seeing him. And I'm baptizing him. How great is that? He sees firsthand and tells everyone, look, there is Christ. There's, there's the Savior who has been promised since all the way back at Adam and Eve, since the very beginning, since the fall. There's the snake crusher. He's come. And Jesus says, John is that great prophet. He's, he's the greatest. He is so great that if you have a wedding party, John isn't like down the line somewhere. No, John describes himself as getting to be the best man at the wedding party. He's the one that gets to stand right next to the groom. Right there. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is saying? John had this greatest of all honors. Jesus is really lifting up John here because of this role. I want you to get that. Look at how high Jesus is lifting up John. That's step one. Step one in the logic argument. And here's step two. You ready for Jesus to land his punch? Jesus says that all of this building up to John's greatness is to teach us something about the kingdom. Look at verse 28b. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay, do you see how incredible John was because he was so close to Jesus? Do you see how close he was to the Son of God himself? The, the very least of you is even closer. The very least of you is greater if you are in this kingdom. I mean, think about that. Think about the very least. I, I don't know. Maybe you might think of yourself but think about whoever you think is a, just a really bad Christian. All right, so they, fine, they, they believe by faith. It's true. There's real repentance. But oh my goodness, there's just a whole lot of grace needed with this one, Lord. Right? Whoever that is, and just think about that across time. Whoever it is that's the, the very least in the kingdom, lowest down, is still greater 
than John. How can Jesus say that? What is going on here? Friends, the closeness and the proximity to this Messiah that came, that John had. Anyone who is born in this new kingdom that Jesus is creating has a far greater closeness. If you are in Christ, in fact, the way that Scripture will begin talking about you, if you are a believer, is that you are in Christ. You're not just next to Christ. You're not just walking through life with Christ. No, time and time again throughout Scripture, we are told that believers are found in Christ. You are, as a believer, united unto the very Son of God. So much so that when, when Jesus looks for a way to try to describe this to us, he tells us things like, all right, I'll be the vine, and you are the branches. You are inseparably tied to me. My life is flowing out through you forever, irreversibly, personally. So much so that when Jesus wants to tell us what we are like as a church, he says, all right, I'll be the head, and you be the body. How close is a head to its body? How dependent is a body on its head? I mean, you don't get much closer proximity than that, do you? So much so, okay, John, you, we'll call you the, the best man of the groom at the wedding. Church, what does scripture say you are at the wedding? You're the bride. You're the bride. You get Jesus. This is the greatness of the kingdom. You can be the very least in this kingdom. And if you are born in this kingdom, oh, the intimacy, the fellowship that you get with Christ just pales into comparison, in comparison to anything gone before. I wonder if you're living in that reality today. I wonder if you're seeing that reality today. Uh, Daryl Bach, I had a quote here. I'm totally off my notes. He says something great here I was going to quote. He says, insightfully, the scales of evaluation are now in this new kingdom being completely rewritten. Now, anyone who is reborn in this new kingdom, second birth, is greater than the greatest that were born once in the old kingdom. How are you doing at living in this reality, oh dear church? Do you know Christ? Do you fellowship with him as one that has greater access to the person of God himself than any born in that old covenant? Are you, this is just one application by the way. You talk over lunch about other applications, what it means to be the least in the kingdom. I'm just kind of picking on one, communion with Christ. Do you experience that fellowship with him in your daily life with that realness of one who is no longer somewhere down the line in the wedding party, but is the bride of the groom, the one who gets to go home with the groom, the one who gets to fellowship with him in sweetness for eternity forevermore? 
Uh, John Owen, in his marvelous book, Communion with God, speaks of this, encouraging us to this type of communion. Listen to what he says. He says, Let us then receive Christ in all his excellencies and glories as he gives himself to us. Frequently, think of him by faith, comparing him with other beloveds, such as sin, the world, and legal righteousness. Then you will more and more prefer him above them all. And you will count them all as rubbish in comparison to him. And let your soul be persuaded of Christ's sincerity and willingness to give himself to you in all that he is to be yours forever. And let us give up ourselves wholeheartedly to him. Let us tell Jesus that we will be for him and not for another. Let him hear this from us. He delights to hear it from our lips. Christ says, your voice is sweeter to my ears and your face is beautiful in my eyes. Are we going to disappoint Christ by neglecting this communion with him? Oh, church family, how are you doing at communing with your Christ? The least in this kingdom has a greater role than the greatest man to have lived in the old kingdom. Do you live in that? We should move on. Let's move on to this third section here. This communion is not experienced by all. So follow along as I read this final section, which really acts as a warning to us, having considered the greatness of Christ. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and, he, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Point number three we see here, the foolishness of the kingdom missed. Just the, the foolishness of missing this kingdom. Here's the warning. You might hear me describe this precious communion with Christ, and you might not walk in it. You might not be satisfied. Like, some of you, just statistically, probably will. Some of you will walk out of this room and not commune with Christ the way that this is talking about. The Son of God giving us this new kingdom, and you'll still not be satisfied. You might see Christ do these miracles, and you might miss him. Listen carefully to make sure it isn't you. And we see here two responses to this ministry of Jesus Christ. So the first one we see is, are these tax collectors. They're the obvious sinners, kind of the illustration for what it looks like to be just a terrible person that comes to Christ. 
and seeing how God worked in John, they responded to his baptism. They responded to him, and they declared that God was morally right by that response. Well, how did they declare that God was right? Well, they were baptized with the baptism of John. If you remember, we talked about this a couple months ago, the baptism of John is a baptism of repentance. And so by repentance, those who came before God and repented, they said what God says about their sinfulness, about his holiness. They are declaring God just. They are saying, God, you are right. Your scales are right. The, the only choice is for me to turn from my sin. You are holy. I am not. I repent. That's what you do, by the way, anytime you repent. You're declaring God's, God's rules. They're the just ones. God's way, his understanding, it's right, not me. I've been, I've been off. That's what repentance is. And so not everyone was like this. Not everyone was baptized with the repentance that John offered. Not everyone was ready to accept that they were wrong. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is what keeps you from true communion with the groom. Maybe you don't want to admit you're wrong. Maybe you don't want to repent. After all, it's your spouse that's wrong. They started it, Lord. Maybe it's your parents that are wrong. Look what they've done to me. Maybe it's the, uh, the, the neighbor that's wrong, the other political party that's wrong, the really bad people in the news. They're the ones that are wrong. Friends, if, if this is you, then you are like the group here that rejected repentance, John's repentance. Notice here who they are. They are, Jesus says, the Pharisees and lawyers, or Luke says rather, they were the ones who rejected repentance. They were, the irony is just insane here. The, the very ones who had never missed a church service, the very ones who knew this book inside and out, they spent their whole lives studying the very words of God in the Old Covenant. That's what they did. That was their job. They are the ones who missed it. Verse 30, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. I think this is just merely Jesus saying that God designs that those who are studying Scripture and teaching it, like these Pharisees, first be the ones to repent. You study it in order to lead others to a repentance that you have yourself experienced. If not, you're just missing it. You're missing your purpose. What does this look like to not repent? Jesus gives us a picture. He gives us this illustration here, and it's just really not a good one. We've got children in the service today. Uh, Jesus gives an illustration with children, and he compares these religious Pharisees to being childish. That's basically what he says. He says, you're acting like an immature child. Not, not a good child, a, a bad child. Look at verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. Now, 
apparently this seems to be some childhood chant that was used for playing with a poor sport. This was used for playing with a whiner, someone who whines. One writer said, this generation is like people, like children who will only play the game if they get to make the rules. Now, I'm sure you can relate to this if you've ever been a parent or if you've ever worked with children or if you've ever been a child yourself. No one likes to play with a child who whines, who is never satisfied. No one likes to play with a child who only plays when they get to set the rules of the game. This is the picture of kids going out in the street and they're, they're playing the piper. They're, they're playing the dancing music and you don't dance. Or then they switch and they're, they're playing the funeral music, pretend it's a funeral, and you don't act sad. This child is childish and spoiled. It's just unpleasant. They miss the game. They don't get to play it. They're sitting on the outside. And Jesus here compares this whole generation of people rejecting him to such spoiled children. They're never satisfied. John and Jesus both came with this same message of repentance and a grace of God, they came with two vastly different styles. Jesus got to be the bridegroom who was there and brought rejoicing and celebration John came calling people to repentance, and the Pharisees accepted neither of them. John's lifestyle of fasting and preaching, oh, that's too radical. You're going too far with your faith right now. He must have a demon. And Jesus' lifestyle of, of celebrating the kingdom, we looked at this several weeks ago. It was just too loose. Luke 5. You're being like a glutton. You should should really be a bit more rigid here. Stop enjoying your food and drink. These Pharisees are clearly known by what they're against, and it's everything. These Pharisees wouldn't accept the message of the kingdom, regardless of how it came. They were like spoiled children calling out, you're not playing by the rules, and then sitting on the sidelines. Friends, are you waiting for God to play by your rules? Or are you conforming yourself to his through regular repentance? May I suggest to you that a God who must play by your rules is no God at all. A God who is not challenging your very fallen nature constantly is not God. No, in that case, you are the one who's acting like God. For God to be God means that he sets the rules. He sets the standards. He even sets the game itself. So with any part of your life right now, just, I can't imagine the myriad of things that we're working through individually with our lives before God. With any part of your life right now that you're finding difficult to obey God, or with any part of your reading of his word that you find difficult to accept. Not to understand, we should seek greater understanding, but you see it clearly and you struggle to accept that. We must begin 
by submitting ourselves to him and letting God be God in our lives. As Paul will tell us, we, we are like pots and he is like the potter. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? When you come apart, uh, across the, a hard part of the Christian life for you, begin by submitting to God and his word. Our culture says that what you feel is most important. Our culture says that who you feel you are is what defines who you are. But God's word says that God is God, and he defines all things. So here's a, just a great uh, discussion for your lunch table today. Is there any part of your life which you are struggling to submit to what God teaches about himself or about what you're to do? The Pharisees missed the kingdom. They missed this intimacy with Christ. They missed knowing God. He was right there, and they missed it. They acted like children who are just never satisfied, even though the most satisfying person in the universe for eternity is standing right in front of them. But those who respond to wisdom, the end of our passage, verse 35, those who respond to wisdom prove how right it is. This is where Jesus ends. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So the tax collectors, they were the repentant ones who had true wisdom. They justify God's wisdom. They, they prove God's wisdom to everyone else by their obedience, unlike the so-called knowledgeable Pharisees who had no true wisdom. We should conclude. Christ here is bringing his kingdom. Its, it's evidence is clear. It, it's greatness it's unparalleled, and missing it is completely foolish. Where were you when you first heard the news of Christ's kingdom work? Well, John got this news reported back to him in a prison cell. Luke isn't going to finish much of his story other than, more, other than just a, a brief mention of it in Luke 9.9. 9. But, but John lost his life. He was beheaded for calling people to repent, for looking towards this kingdom. In a sense, today, what we've just kind of read together is his obituary. It's the final news report about John to see who he was. He was one of the ones that, that Hebrews 11 tells us suffered imprisonment, was killed with the sword, refusing to accept release so that he might rise again to better life. He was one of the ones whom the world was not worthy. Church, who will we be today? Will we, will we be the ones that miss the bridegroom? That stand off to the sides? Or will we be the ones who have this sweet fellowship of communion with our Savior? Don't miss by the, the kingdom. Don't, don't insist that God play by your rules. Instead, look to the evidence. Jesus Christ is bringing his new kingdom. Don't fail to commune with the king this week. May we know Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray over this body 
that you would give us the strength and ability to obey your word this week. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that Jesus Christ is this source of living water and that all else are like broken cisterns. Father, may we run to that living water. May we run to the rock, to Christ today and this week, tomorrow, the next day. Father, may we not miss this kingdom. May we conform ourselves to this Savior, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.